This show discusses sensitive material relating to mental health, which some people may find triggering. If anything is distressing, please reach out for help. All right, we're on it. I wonder what you mean when you use the word I. Use the word I. Welcome back, you beautiful animals, to another episode of the podcast. I've been dying to put this one out. It is with the lovely Sarah Wilson. This episode was actually recorded in 2021, but due to me being ridiculously busy and needing to prioritize my self-care and other parts of my life, I've had to sit on it, and now I get to release it. So I'm really pumped to share our chat with you on Make Anxiety Your Superpower. For those that aren't familiar with Sarah, she is an Australian journalist, television presenter, blogger, media consultant, and most famous for authoring the book, I Quit Sugar, and also being the leader of that empire of millions of people in the I Quit Sugar online community also. She was the editor of Cosmo magazine by the age of 29. She's been a host on MasterChef. Uh, She actually talked about punching the dressing room wall and breaking two knuckles whilst being on that show. She's written for major publications and newspapers. She's also written the book First, We Make the Beast Beautiful. And her current focus is on being a climate activist and educator. We discussed her recent book launch, Make Anxiety Your Superpower where she interviews 10 different guests of uh, people around the world and shares what she's learned about how anxiety has actually helped their life. Uh, You'll hear a reference to me asking her when it's available, and she says November, but that was November 2021. Soz about being so late on this, Uh, but you can absolutely now find it on Audible. It has been out for a while, so make sure you check that out. My biggest takeaways from the interview was just how refreshingly real Sarah is and how unapologetically herself she is. That's my type of people, people who wear their heart on their sleeve. She balances her strength with a softness and compassion that you guys will feel just as much as I did during our chat. So it was an absolute honor to be able to interview someone of her caliber. What we cover in the episode is... How do you know when anxiety is your superpower versus when it's actually hurting you? We talk about her kind of massive insight of what if I decide to stay when she was contemplating suicide and do it my way. Her George Costanza moment where she said, well, what if I just do the opposite of consumerism and capitalism and traditional relationships, etc.? We talk about the importance of what she refers to as the wrestle and how we aren't focused on resilience enough in our approach to mental health, which I sincerely agree with. We unpack what it means to do anxiety once. We talk about why Sarah trusts anxious people more than non-anxious people, the two tools she uses to reduce her anxiety, the one thing she let go of and the one thing she gained that changed her life. 
I share what I believe is the first step to everyone's journey to living with anxiety. We talk about what it's like getting a mental ill health diagnosis at the age of 12. She lives with bipolar, OCD, and Hashimoto's disease, which is an autoimmune disease that causes thyroid dysfunction. And she talks about all those on the episode. We describe her, or she describes her ultimate breakdown and what that looked like for her when she said to herself, I'm ready to go, and what kept her here. And also the importance of minimalism. Uh, And finally, how you shouldn't wait for a dark night of the soul to make a change that you can get ahead of it and should get ahead of it. And I think talks like this will help and hopefully inspire you to do so. Plenty of golden nuggets in this one for sure. Sit back or sit forward, whatever you're doing in the car or at work, wherever you are, and let the reins go. Take it all in because this one will hopefully make life a little bit easier for you in one way or another. As always, go slow, go strong, one moment at a time. We're all on the journey. I know for you that you were 12 when when you received your first diagnosis. And I want to know, how did that shape your view of the world? Well, it was a very different era because, you know, we're talking, oh, you know, the mid 80s and anxiety had only been, um, well, had only entered the DSM, the main diagnostic tool that psychiatrists use as a disorder in 1980. There it is, the DSM-5. <laughs> um, so I love that you've got that ready to go just at your at, at hand there. Um, so, yeah. yeah, it was early days. And my parents, you know, I grew up in the country. I remember my parents drove me into town <laughs> and um, dad had been told, I think, by somebody at work, you know, take her to a counsellor. And, again, it was OCD for me, all to do with nighttime routines and fear that something very bad would happen if I didn't sleep. And it stemmed from... You know, when I was, I remember my dad going through a midlife crisis when he was 30 and I remember lying awake awake and hearing him awake and freaking out that he couldn't sleep and perform the next day. So I know that that's probably where it stemmed from in some ways, but it was very early days in all of this and my parents didn't really know what to make of it. And in fact, they actually say they can't even remember sort of the diagnosis or, or, or absorbing it. So it was just sort of, and I said glandular fever, which I think is very related around about the same time. And then I launched my first business at the same time and I discovered God. I used to read the Bible. This is all around 11, 12. So you can see that, you know, there was this fermenting of of stuff, you know, Um, and of course it was going to have to boil over in such a small entity and a brain that was going too fast for its lived experience and parents who who really were ill-equipped. So it was a very different era to you, Mitch, like, I got the diagnosis and I don't think I even stopped to pause on what it meant. Um, I was caught up in all the other stuff. It wasn't until I was 18 and it was around then that Prozac um, kind of, and there were antidepressants that were starting to enter Australia. And um, I was one of the very early adopters (laughs) with the antidepressants. So I was on Prozac in the very early days. So it wasn't until I was about 18, 17, 18, I started to get some serious help. Um, And again, it was very early days and it was a very rudimentary understanding. It was all about eradicating it. And um, 
And really from there I felt that all of this was wrong and that's what took me on my journey. Right. Mm. And uh, uh, you've always been an overachiever and even with your medication start, (laughs) you were an early adopter and since then you've (laughs) paved the way in so many different categories. But so I can imagine that although that was exciting and that there was clarity that maybe there's this drug that can help, um, you you go on to later explain that you received a diagnosis of bipolar and a mm. traditional SSRI, which would be used to treat the depression, the anxiety, the OCD, can actually heighten or worsen the hypermania or mania within bipolar. So I guess that just caused another complication. Yeah. Um, so that was when I was 21, I was diagnosed with bipolar. So in fact, I'd actually gone off the SSRIs to move to California. I got a scholarship to study philosophy of the universe. I mean, what chance did I have of keeping my brain stable? But um, so I headed over there and I came off the medication because in America, I couldn't afford it. It's so expensive over there. So I gradually came off it. And so that sent me into a mania. It was partly also because I was not sleeping. I was excited to be there. It was all new. And gradually um, my OCD crept in and then um, I wasn't sleeping. I was sleeping one or two hours a night and eventually I imploded. So I was on the other side of the world. I had, you know, again, my parents were very uh, unaware that they'd had another baby um you know and they were caught up in all of that so nobody knew what was going on um so yes it was kind of coming off the SSRI which then triggered um extra OCD and then um and then I went into a hypomania which developed into a mania that I couldn't control and um it was yeah it was in the US that I got di- first diagnosed with um what was called manic depression back then um, and eventually a boyfriend who had broken up from, from, he came over and got me. Um, we drove across the desert in an old Dodge van. Um, and I don't remember any of it. I was in a full mania. I was high as a kite, not sleeping, but also panicking constantly, you know, um, and doing quite destructive things, not because I wanted to kill myself or anything like that, but I was testing I just didn't know what was real anymore. I had to keep testing. So I would, you know, flung myself downstairs. I set fire to my apartment. I slept in a puddle for two days. I was just going to an edge because I, I just, yeah, I mean, people listening might find it familiar. Self-destructiveness is not so much about trying to destroy oneself. It's trying to test the boundaries of yourself. Um, and eventually I came home and was put on to anti-epileptics and um, antipsychotics because the traditional uh, medication wasn't suitable for me because at the same time, what do you know, I've got another autoimmune disease. Um, so I developed um, Graves' disease, which is a form of thyroid disease. And the two going tandem for me throughout my life. You know, when I had another flare-up, it was when I developed Hashimoto's. So, um, yeah, it... Um, it's been this kind of intertwined journey, but you're yeah. right. You know, the medication can actually flip you from one to the other, as can just the behaviour. Right. Mania, and it can send you into a depression. And so some people will be able to relate to that directly in terms of their diagnosis. Um, some people will be able to relate to the medication spirals, the two steps forward, one step back. Um, mm. A lot of people will relate to self 
self-sabotaging or self-destructive behavior where you just want to feel um, and you want to, I think, destroy the part of you inside that's causing you pain. Um, but unfortunately, you can't selectively destroy. You have to attack the whole being. Mm. I think, but more than any of those things, what people will be able to relate to there is the feeling of being completely overwhelmed, exhausted, and they can't see the light at the end of the tunnel without sugarcoating it. And for what you feel comfortable explaining, can you take me back to a time where it just completely all felt too much and you're like, there is just no way I'm getting out of this. Do you remember like Mm. exactly where you were and what you were doing? Well, there've been a number of occasions where that has happened Um, but there was one in particular that was a turning point. So maybe I'll describe that one. That was when I was 34 and I'd been the editor of Cosmopolitan. I had a boyfriend who was a party guy and, you know, the combination of, you know, waiting for him to come home at five in the morning, managing a bunch of staff when I was so young, you know. Mm. Um, I was 29 when I became editor of Cosmo and I'd never read the magazine in my life. I'd never managed staff. I mean, God knows why they chose me. But I'd managed it and did quite well and 34, it all came crashing, you know, in a heap. And it got to the point where it was right when magazines were starting to take a plunge, you know, they were starting to really struggle because the internet had been invented <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, you know, that was starting to take away business. And um, the pressure of all of that, the pressure of not sleeping once again, um, led me to a point where I was just working, 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 working. I was working Saturday, I was working Sunday, and I was just trying to fix things. And it was like paralleling what I was trying to also do in my brain. And um, this is what we do, right? We try, all right, I'll try this, I'll try that, I'll try this. And you you try all these different options. And the way that I describe what happened when I finally imploded, and fortunately I developed an illness that made me stop. I developed the perfect illness, which was Hashimoto's, as I mentioned before, which is a thyroid disease which grinds you to a halt. And also it takes away everything that was forced, that was motivating you to behave like you used to. So in my case, you know, it makes you fat. It, your hair falls out. Your nails fall out. You age incredibly. Your hair goes grey. Um, you've got no life force. You've got no energy. Um, you can't exercise. Um, your brain's your brain just grinds to a sluggish halt. So all the things that I'd prided myself on, which was being fit and strong and robust and healthy and vibrant, were just gone. Mm. Um, I was left a, an overweight shell of myself. And um, like I put on, people always want to know this, I put on 15 to 18 kilos in three and a half weeks. You know, that was harsh. Mm. Um, And so, yeah, I I remember feeling that it was almost like I had strategized in every possible direction, 360 degrees of, you know, strategies I'd tried. And I was being pulled out and then, though, you know, I was trying to pull in and, the net result of all of that mental activity and trying was like zero, didn't move, nothing was happening. And I reached a point where I was like, there's nowhere on the planet for me to go. There's nowhere. There's nothing more to try. I can't, like, I, I, and then I went into a very dark night of soul. And I remember I was in this apartment and um, 
I was unable to walk or work and I'd been lying in pyjamas on my bedroom floor for three days and I had one of those really ugly um, mirrored wardrobes, you know, and I was just staring at myself and I remember looking in my eyes and I disappeared. I couldn't see myself anymore. Mm. And um, I just knew that I was ready to go. You know, like it wasn't a violent, right, I'm going to kill myself moment. It was just, okay, now I've tried everything. There is no place for me on this planet any longer. And I was very calm about it because I knew I'd tried everything. Um, So the funny thing that happened then, and I think this is because I'm a fighter and I I inherently love life, you know, I absolutely adore it. And I skew towards the mania more so than depression because I abhor depression. I abhor slovenliness. I abhor inactivity. Um, And so I ricochet away from it as often as possible. But what happened was I went, all right, well, hang on. If I'm willing to and ready to exit this mortal coil, this game, what if I decided to stay and did it my own way with just the clothes on my back and I do it radical? Because, hey, I'm willing to give it all up, so why not redefine it and do it my own way? And it was at 34 I made the decision to never get caught up again, to never get caught up in consumerism, capitalism, people's expectations, the conveyor belt, the white picket fence and husband scenario, all that shit that played at me. I just went, right, I'm going to do it my own way. We'll see what happens. Let's play this game. And I literally got up and I went and ate peanut butter and then this really weird thing, all this stuff crashed in. Like the next day, Carrie ann Kennelly rang. You might not remember who that is, but there was a show that, and she said, can you host my show for a week? And so I did that and then that led to MasterChef and then I, you know, and then it just all kind of built on and on and on and my life started to move in jerky steps forward, you know. Jerky steps forward. Yeah. Uh, you, you've described that moment and, by the way, so well articulated and um, I bet that that first group of peanut butter was like the, the, the symbol of a new way of living. It was your George Costanza moment. It was the <laughs> ultimate fuck Do it. the opposite, yeah. It was the ultimate letting go. And um, I've had my own George Costanza moment like you where, I broke so far beyond the point that I thought any human could go. And at that point, I thought it was the beginning of the end. It was actually the beginning because Mm. my ego was still there. And the universe was like, I'm going to strip you down, motherfucker, Mm. until you have to surrender. And And surrender to me looked like I am not okay. And I fully accept that. Whatever it is that I've been running from, I want to talk about running from because that's one of the core theses of your new upcoming series mm. um, of Make Anxiety Your Superpower is that the impediment to getting better is often the running away. And I think it was in the moment where I was in a million pieces in a hotel room in the middle of nowhere, America, where I went, whatever it is, this fear of being crazy, this fear of being a bad person, this fear of being alone, this fear of being misunderstood, all of it, I've got nothing else to lose now. Put yeah. whatever label you want. Judge me however. I will bear my soul to those that I've been hiding from. Uh, and it was then and only then that I started to get better. And so I think you describe it as a choice in, that, in those moments, a mm-hmm. choice to move from a story that you've told yourself for a long time and then flip the arc and that catalyst moment. Tell me, other than the peanut butter, what was the first choice you made as this new Sarah where you're like, fuck it, 
I got nothing to lose. Yeah. No, I'll get to that. I might just also just give a little caveat for anyone listening who is suffering anxiety and who's going, when am I going to have my dark soul of the night moment? Well, you don't have to. Correct. Really good um, pickup, actually. Yeah, because um, it's still a choice. You can make the choice at any time. And also it, it can be dramatic and generally it can be dramatic when you haven't had the right support or it can be actually measured one step forward, three quarters of a step back, another step forward. And I did that as I'm sure you did too and still do it, right? So there's that and then you have dramatic moments. Well, you don't have to have the dramatic moments. It's this wrestle for the rest of your life and the wrestle is noble the wrestle is important so that's what i would just say to people is that you can still wrestle with all of these ideas without having this big turning point moment um and and i have the turning point moment and then i still have these curves as opposed to sharp you know about faces um and so it's all important it's all you know you can do it in all kinds of ways so don't feel that you know you've got to wait for that moment so um yeah what's after the peanut butter um i got caught up again so you know another step backwards because i went and did master chef which just destroyed my soul i got caught up again you know um but i ricocheted out of that I had this very memorable, explosive moment on set of MasterChef in the final two, second last day of recording where I literally exploded and punched the, um, the dressing room wall and just smashed things and, and everything, which is not my personality. Um, I broke two knuckles and then had to go back the next day in a big, ridiculous dress with my boobs everywhere. It was the beginning of widescreen TV and high digital format. We were the first show and I went to the pub to finally watch the show because it hadn't, I didn't realise it was big when we were, you know, filming right. it. And there I was with just boobs, boobs and hair. <laughs> I was just like, right, I'm out of here. So, yes, I got out of that. Um, I exploded out of that. So that was a step backwards. And, um, and then I moved to Byron. So I was a cliche. It was, a bit, it was 12 years ago, so you've got to give me a break there. It wasn't quite the oh, cliche absolutely. it is today. Yeah. Um, but I decided to pack up everything. I gave away my belongings. I had a car at that stage and I put everything in the car and I moved to a, an, an old army shed in the forest outside Byron and I essentially just lived really simply I didn't replace anything and gradually gradually over well it was really over 10 years I I whittled everything down to one bag of belongings so I went with a car load and you know and then I traveled the world and I had one day pack you know carry-on bag in the end so for the final six months of that journey which ended three years ago I just had one carry-on bag and so that was probably what I started to adopt is not attaching not buying um you know I'd always been a minimalist even when I was at Cosmo everything I wore was secondhand I used to ride to work um nobody knew right it was all smoke and mirrors um you know I'd sort of wear these old secondhand dresses and and things like that and I refused any gifts I I to this day have never owned a handbag in my life Mm. um and refused all the handbags that were thrust at me as they are when you're the editor of a magazine so yeah I I think that's where I started to find some elegance and some it's through that that not requiring not needing that I started to really feel into and live out um, that renegade way that I needed to be yeah. able to handle my anxiety going forward. So what would you say in a word 
that in in the in the pivotal moment where you almost were reborn in a way, um, or at least you made a choice to live different, what did you, in a word, what did you let go of? And in a word, what did you gain? I let go of needing, of needing, if I've got to reduce it to one word. And then I gained, hmm, it would be jumping too far ahead to say me, but I, what I did is I had an opening into the journey that became sitting with myself. Okay. I wasn't there at that stage, but I started to get glimpses. And, yeah. yeah. And then the needing to me, you've, you've described the needing of material things, but what sounds as important for you in that moment was the needing of validation, the needing of living by social norms, Mm-hmm. the the needing of um answers answers and, and and ego it sounds like as well and and just fully 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 living as the you that you'd always wanted to but had avoided ignored or yeah kind of well like I say it was a bumpy journey and it was jerky because I'm still grappling with it I still grapple with it you know I'm I'm almost 48 and I still grapple with the vanity side of things. You know, I lived in the east, I live in the eastern suburbs of Sydney for God's sakes. It's, you know, I still, you know, worry about various things and and also struggle with my loneliness. Mm-hmm. Um, loneliness at a physical level, but loneliness at a at a spiritual and emotional level. Yeah. You know? Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a, like I said before, it's a wrestle that I will be doing for the rest of my life, but the wrestle itself, and maybe that's what I gained is an appreciation of the wrestle. Mm. I now love the wrestle. I now know the wrestle is important. It's so familiar and it's also delivered me so much joy and, you know, which is where that superpower thing comes into play because I've got to accept my anxiety and the beauty of it and the vastness of it, the importance of it, the historical legacy of it, where it fits into the human experience, the story of, the, of human evolution, I can now use it and, you know, I can, I can ref- when I'm in the middle of some terrible anxiety, I can go, okay, this is, this is going to lead somewhere. It's okay. We'll pass through it and I know it's going to take me somewhere. So, yeah, probably what, if I can reframe that, what I gained was an understanding of the wrestle. How would you feel if I asked us to pivot the word wrestle to dance? What's yeah, your reaction you, to that? Well, I'd say go for it. However, um, and I'm just going to put my power cord in, which is an annoying thing for you to have to hear me do. One sec. <laughs> That's all right. We're keeping it there raw here. Um, so, uh, you know what? Dance, dance. Yeah, that's right. Dance is great. Dance is great. But for me, I am somebody, I'm more of a stick person rather than a carrot person. I've always responded well to um, hardship. Grew up in it, you know, like I, I grew up with zero cocooning and I respond well to the grist. So for me, a wrestle is noble. A wrestle is, 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 heaps, of, um, is heaps of fun. Dance, I'm a shit dancer. That'd be <laughs> my limbs are too long. Um, I'm too self-conscious. Uh, wrestle, however, I grew up with four brothers in the country, so I'm familiar with that that wording. Yeah. The the reason why I asked that is because 
when it comes to making something your superpower, um, I've found that often the emotions that feel like our curse are mm-hmm. actually our gifts. And that's kind of the premise that I think you're driving towards in this new series. And how do we learn to bring out the best of those beautiful flowers, but not get pricked by the thorns. Um, And I found that in order to make anxiety my superpower, I had to start with acceptance. I had to start by letting go of shame and trying to um, fully give myself permission to be me. And instead of trying to make the anxiety stop, like go to toe to toe with it, I found every time I went toe to toe with it, that it was like, let's fucking go. And it grew. And especially the OCD, which I would call like the pinnacle of anxiety. It's the most resilient, tenacious form. It's like pure, pure heroin of the anxiety world. And um, when I actually stopped to go head to head with it, And started to invite it into the campfire and get to know it a bit and not make friends with it, not make enemies with it, but coexist with it. That's when I started to be able to work with it. And and that's why I just am probing on the wrestle a, Mm. a little bit around how much effort do we use to wrangle our curses and bring them back into gift territory so that we can make them a superpower. Yeah. Um, I guess it's we're, we're, we're getting, you know, into the nuance of it all because for me I find it helpful to let people know that the wrestle, it's okay if the wrestle continues. You might not find perfect peace with it in this lifetime, but that in itself is wonderful. Not mm-hmm. only is it okay, not only can you live with it, you can thrive with it. And I also do think the greatest things come from discomfort and you know, I think one of the real problems with the way that we deal with anxiety in our culture is that we run from discomfort of anything. Agreed. You know, um, we focus on cocooning, medicating, um, giving labels that are about eradicating, you know, so you've got a problem and we're going to like then are cocooning you from the world. And that all that does is keep you in a suffocating bubble of anxiety. Um Technology, of course, plays into that because it enables all of this. It enables us to cocoon. It it prevents us from developing the resilience to do the wrestle. Yeah. Um, so I actually think the wrestle is important because it is. It's about developing resilience. Um, so you know, in the realm of anxiety, you do the wrestle so that you've then got the resilience to deal with real life Agreed. as it knocks you about. So the dance, you do, the wrestle gets more elegant and it resembles a dance as you get older, for sure, for sure. And then it has an ugly regression into the wrestle kind of vibe. And then, but yeah, you do try to, you do try to make it more artful. Yeah. And I love your reference to, to going toward the discomfort, you know, Buddhism, um, dialectical behavioral therapy, uh, there's all these incredibly wise structures that are telling us that acceptance and change aren't mutually exclusive. In fact, they need each other to exist. Mm. Um, And that instead of just trying when a problem occurs, let's make that go away as quick as possible by drinking, eating, working, ignoring what about we go toward and, and learn from and sit with so that our resilience muscle grows? Because just like the physical body, mm. a mental muscle grows when we learn to not run away from but sit with. 
that. And would you say that in, in your series and all the interviews you did, that that was a common theme of people who did make anxiety their superpower? Yeah, well, it was definitely part of the challenge that I worked through with each guest. So it's 10 guests across 10 episodes and they're from all different countries and places around the world. And they all had a different flavour of anxiety. But yeah, it was the central theme is getting them cool with the discomfort, getting themselves cool with their storyline around anxiety and seeing why it exists and why it has existed to take them to good places. And, you know, we were able to see that anxiety had already delivered them to quite good places. So there was one one guest um, and he, you know, Keith, you know, he's an African-American man in quite a poor area. He has four kids, four sons. He now works as a dispatch worker at Amazon. And, um, you know, we were able to actually see that, you know, the anxiety and the discomfort that he had felt had actually driven him to better places, places that saved his marriage, places that enabled him to, like he was doing a podcast. He wouldn't have got there if he hadn't quit the job that, you know, he, he imploded in anxiety and forced him to sort of quit slash get fired from a job that led him to an easier job working in a dispatch centre where he can do these other projects. And so we're actually able to see every single time that his anxiety exploded, it actually led him to where exactly to the places that he valued now. So it was, it's sort of a a process of recognizing, retelling the story, reframing what has already happened. And then also seeing where we can enhance it going forward with different, different sort of very contemporary behavioral techniques. I'm sure you and some of your listeners would be aware of somatic embodiment sort of processes, which I think are really helpful Mm. um, because they take you into the discomfort You basically go into the discomfort in your body, you feel where it is, and as you sit with it, as you say, you know, as you sit with it, it becomes familiar and you can start to sort of develop some acceptance and also start to hear what your body's trying to tell you. Correct, yeah, and that process has many names. It's called desensitization and habituation um, in a clinical setting where Mm. the body stops... uh, stops basically sending all just like a physical virus where swelling and stuff occurs the body stops seeing it as a let's go seek and destroy that anxiety and because the worst part about anxiety is the anxiety about the anxiety correct right is the reactionary layer that does all the damage Mm -hmm. so when if you can just experience anxiety that's when you start to win that's when you start to win Um, I say do anxiety once. And I said that a lot throughout the series. Hey, let's do anxiety once. We do it once, panic attack. And a lot of people experience their anxiety through panic attacks. Panic attack lasts 15 to 25 minutes. Oh, max. 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 Yeah. So so sit through it. Um, And in fact, over time, you start to then find it interesting to sit through it. All right, what's happening now? You know, and that's what I do now. I don't really have panic attacks because, like, I'm up hardened anxious person I've recognized panic attacks and I know what's going on I know it's not me having a heart attack I know I can calm down my heart rate it's generally churning in my head as opposed to to the body and in fact the bodily stuff is at a deeper level which you know is going to take a lifetime to release um yeah it's sort of it's now quite interesting I quite like somatic therapies Mm because it forces me into these spaces and then these wild kind of things start to happen, you know. It's quite a, you know what, I mean, I think my life is way more interesting being anxious because I find 
a lot of my life really boring. Like I shouldn't say that, you know, only boring people are bored. Um, Perhaps I'm boring, but I actually find the wrestle really quite interesting these days. And that's a big part of making it into your superpower. And this is what I used to, you know, I was telling some of these, especially some of the older um, and particularly women, older women who had anxiety, when I say older, sort of roughly my age, um, you know, was, hey, it's actually quite interesting what our brains and our emotional and spiritual systems do, Mm. you know. And in terms of, so there's this wonderful therapist and I bring him into the mix, Dr. Judd Brewer. He's one of the experts that I draw on. He's, um, he write, he, he, he's written a recent book. Um, he's a neuroscientist and he talks about how curiosity is one of the biggest salves for anxiety because curiosity is, um, you can't be curious and anxious at the same time because curiosity opens your whole system and anxiety shuts it down and restricts. So while ever you're curious, it's very hard to be anxious. And one of the things that you can do as an anxious person is be curious about your anxiety and all the responses that you have. And so that's an incredible practice. It's so close to home and immediate, you know, people who mm-hmm. have anxiety are always anxious. So you've always got something to be curious about. Yep. And it's that process that can actually lift you out of the pain of your anxiety. Yeah. And just for everyone listening, curiosity doesn't mean analyze because <laughs> curiosity is a softer emotion than analyze, way softer. And yeah. I think it comes from the heart, not the head when you're truly curious. Totally. It comes um, from the body and it's, it's, yeah, it's very much about an openness and my, my meditation teacher says this to me quite often. He says, he says, let's see, as in let us, you, me, the flow of life, see what happens if you do this. Amen. And, you know, and, and um, he'll often say to me, the camera's still rolling, Sarah. Let the camera keep rolling. I'm like, oh, okay, let's see what happens. Let's us, let us see what happens. And so that's actually a little phrase that I find helps a lot of people when I share it as well is, when you're anxious, let's just see what happens. And especially, you know, if you're in a panic attack, 15 minutes, let's let's see what happens afterwards. Don't fight it. You know, mm. that, that's what I'm hearing from you. you. You starve anxiety when you stop trying to dictate what's going to happen next. It's just, yeah. okay, let this roll. Let, let the camera roll. Mm. And then we only have to do it once. Yeah. The other thing as well with anxiety is like I was saying this to somebody just the other day. I trust anxious people (laughs) and like I like having anxious people work for me and I like working with anxious people because I know that they care, right, and I know they're going to be onto it. I know that their anxiety is going to steer them to make sure that they've covered all bases and things like that. Um, We live in a country where, you know, it's all about being laid back and she'll be right. No, no. I mean, it's you'd have to be insane not to be anxious in 2021, (laughs) you know like you'd have to have a missing I don't know a couple of brain cells not to notice that these are anxious times and that we should be on high alert you know I love the multi-layered um meaning in you'd have to be insane not to be anxious it's so good (laughs) it's so good I know uh that might have to be the uh the caption of this interview Mm. um to get like tactical what are the two biggest things you've learned about how to make some uh, an emotion like anxiety a superpower ah okay um in terms of practices that people could use to to access that mindset sure you think yeah well, I think that a practice that actually really, really helps and can, can get you to that place is two. 
and you've asked me for two. Mm-hmm. So the first is um, is doing things at a discerning pace. So walking and handwriting go at the same pace as the discerning mind. And I think a lot of the reason, all the problems in the world today stem from the fact that we do not have the space and the time to think in a discerning, nuanced way. And, of course, anxiety being a reflection of that as well. Um, I think a lot of anxiety stems from the fact that we, we find it so hard to think clearly through things. Now, what walking and handwriting as opposed to typing does is it brings us into a pace that we evolved to. So our brains, particularly the sophisticated part of the brain that defines us as humans, so the prefrontal cortex as opposed to the amygdala, evolved as we got upright and started putting one foot in front of the other. And so those practices, walking and handwriting, are the bomb for getting yourself into a space where you can start to think through all these things we've been discussing and feel through them and live them and accept them into your life. And so it's that sort of a modulating practice that gets you very familiar with it. And then the other benefit of walking, especially walking in nature, is you start to see the congruence. You start to see a patterning, a reflection back to you of how life is meant to be. So fractals in our eyes are the repeated, fractals of repeated patterns, you know. So if you think of fronds, uh, fern fronds, you know, or daisies, you know, a repeated pattern, you know, tidal pools, tree trunks, all that kind of thing. When we go into nature, we see this patterning and our retinas respond to it as a sense of belonging and congruence and, hey, this is how things are meant to be. So walking in nature has, look, I mean, I think there's close to 40,000 studies that explain why walking in nature can help us, but primarily with anxiety. So that would be one thing. The other thing that I would say that gets you into that space, like, you know, clicks you in, like, is um, song nerding. And nerding out on the soul is essentially reading about great minds, great thinkers, great creatives who have existed well before us, who had similar feelings, similar responses, had anxiety. And the wonderful thing is, is the majority of writers, the majority of creators, the majority of artists had some form of anxious disorder. Mm. And so then they went on to write about it. You know, I think it's um, Holden's teacher in Catcher in the Rye you know, he's fretting about his anxiety in his life and what it's all about. And the, the teacher says, look, the great thing is that there have been many, many people who've experienced this before you. And what do you know? They happen to turn out to be writers and they've written about their experiences. Go forth and study it. And so I call it soul nerding. Mm. And it's, it's a form of spiritual practice, but it can really get you okay with the broader story of anxiety. And from there, you can see that these people use their anxiety as a superpower and to have that reflected back at you. Oh, gosh, it helps. So if I play that back, um, what I've heard is slowing down, connecting with something bigger than us, i.e. Mm-hmm. through nature and relating really to, to not feel alone. And through that relating, there's, there's an inspiring. Yeah. And so the, the, those things, and I'm intentionally kind of pushing on this because I'm going to come to the Uber question, which is how do you know when anxiety has become your superpower? Mm-hmm. So w- through those practices, what I've heard is we're reducing the excess of the negative sides of anxiety and we're getting it back down to a controllable realm. So therefore is the thesis 
when your anxiety is not hurting you, it's a superpower or does it, is it more than that? Is it just the absence of hurt? Yeah, I see what you're saying. So um, yes, step one, ensure that you can modulate the extremes so that it's not, you know, tearing you off in all directions and you're wobbly. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I use the expression, well, there's two analogies, you know, it's like having, a, especially with manic depression or bipolar, you've got this kite and it can soar high and it can be fun, but you've also got to ensure that because once it gets high, it can also flap about and get uncontrollable. So you've got to find that sweet spot, the right length. You've got to hold on to that string firmly and work out where the right length is. And that's a, that's a you know, a nice curious journey to go on is to find where your sweet spot is, where you can modulate. And meditation, these discerning practices, walking, handwriting, soul nerding can get you back to a nice modulated place as well as regular exercise, sunlight, eating well, all of those things are non-negotiable if you have anxiety. You've just got to be in a modulated space. But I take your point. Do you just hang out there in this nice modulated space, this even territory, or do you have to do something else to use it as your superpower? And I would say yes, yes. Um, I think that, and it's a hard thing to pinpoint with, with language, but what I would say, and this is what works for me, it's not for everyone, Not everybody has the drive, but I would say there's a lot of anxious people who are A-types. A lot of people are anxious because they've they've grown up with a sense that I'm meant to be doing something that serves humanity. That's a generalisation. It's not everyone with anxiety, but I would say that that is often what... um, It's often what will actually cause the anxiety is the frustration that they're not doing enough in this lifetime. And as children, maybe they're held back from the creative things they needed to be doing. Um, And equally, I would say that there's some people that are born with anxiety precisely so that they can go out and take risks Mm. and be that part of the percentage of the population that's required to possess these high octane, highly sensitive uh, superpowers so that they can be the inventors, the writers, the poets that I just mentioned before, you know. Um, So, yes, there is something and that I would say that I'll talk from a personal point of view. I modulate, I get to a space where I'm reasonably stable and then I allow some of that, that high energy to come through. And as it comes through, I am able to steer it to activity, to action, and it naturally through probably, well, for you know, since since my mid-30s has steered me to the stuff that matters. Mm. And everything that doesn't matter, it becomes intolerable. So once I quit sugar, I had reached its point where I felt, right, I've shifted the dialogue there. And now, really, it's just about making money and leveraging. And everyone, all my business managers that I employed, they're like, oh, now we've got to leverage. We're going to dial this up. And we're going to... I'm like, nah, Mm-mm. I'm out of here. And so May 2018, I shut down the business. I sold off the assets, gave the whole lot to charity. Everything from I Quit Sugar goes to charity. So it's millions of dollars I've given away. And I had to do that to ensure that I stayed true to that commitment that I made at 34, lying in front of that mirrored wardrobe. Um So that brings that full circle. But I have had to, yeah, I have to do, my anxiety comes out in these kind of almost you could say manic moments, Mm -hmm. but because I modulate, Mm. they don't get out of control. Because I've done the soul nerding, I know what's going on and I don't get anxious about that 
anxiety. anxiety. <laughs> I can now witness myself. I can stand back from it all because I've practiced curiosity and I can witness, okay, this is what I'm doing. And I can be grateful for it because I can see that it produces results. Mm. And then I've got to constantly fine tune it. But because I've done all of this work, I'm able to pull myself in when it gets out of control, you know, and that means not going out into social situations sometimes because I know I'm too much for people, particularly in this country. Mm. Um, And it also means I've got to, like, the other week, I the first day that we got released from our five-kilometre radius, Mm -hmm. you know, or our, you know, greater Sydney radius, hired a car and I just went bush. I took my tent I hiked, I slept in dirt, and I was wobbly before that. I was really out of sorts. I'd gone into a pretty dark place. COVID lockdowns and everything hadn't been super easy, as they, you know, which is the case for many of us. Um, and so, yeah, I know that that's what works. I pick myself up, I shut everything down, I just tell people I'm not available, and I go bush for mm. generally only three days. This time it was six days, and I'm fixed. Yep. <laughs> so I know what I have to do. Um, So, yes, it is about allowing it to come through and probably encouraging it a little, Mm. encouraging a little bit of that madness to come through. Mm, I love that, encouraging your madness to come through. I think what what allows that to happen safely is you allow the madness to come through in a semi-regulated state, so or fully regulated uh, if there's such a thing. But um, what I've distilled from what you've said is modulate, serve modulate serve oh that's perfect thank you for picking up on that because a lot of the work that people do in this space you know the self-care kind of realm and the whole wellness space is um too inwards way too inwards and as you would know i'm sure you've spoken to guests and you've explored it yourself that one of the biggest fixes one of the greatest selves for anxiety is to be of service is to actually volunteer and to help people and to engage with people. And so, yes, take all of that energy and take it out into the world. And one of the best examples is Greta Thunberg, you know, who had all kinds of anxious disorders. She was a self-harmer. She didn't eat. She couldn't talk. She had Asperger's. She couldn't go to school for a year. She was lying in a bedroom communicating through her father until she went and sat outside the Swedish parliament with a cardboard sign and now she has been, she's the ultimate pinup person for her, using her anxiety as a superpower. So mm. she got criticised, or at least her parents did, for allowing, you know, this daughter with a mental illness to, to run a worldwide campaign. And her response, I think it was on, you know, social media, she said, you know, she told exactly that story I just mentioned. Before all of this, I was a mess. And really what it says to me is that some of us, I think we're born for right now. Mm. Our anxiety is required. And, you know, it's no coincidence that I've become a climate activist and climate educator. And, um, you know, that more than anything else has seen my anxiety dial down. Mm. Yeah, because I think what I'm hearing is that you you need to get good at regulating your cares or fucks, depending on how you would define that, mm-hmm. to the point where they're not hurting you. And from that state, we channel that into contribution. And that's what I'm hearing is when it becomes a superpower. When yeah. it's not powering you, you are powering it and you're using it for good, not evil. Mm-hmm. 
Would oh, you and even yeah, and even better than good versus evil for saving us all, you know. And one of the one of the one of the people that you know talked to me in this, you know, one of the ten guests on the series, um, is a climate activist, a young girl in her twenties, and totally despairing, wondering where it's all heading. And this is exactly the conversation we had to have with her, and she um, she got it. Of course, she got it. You always get it right. You know, if it, if it, once you have the truth reflected back at you, she knew that her anxiety was entirely appropriate and is, is required for the current times. Um, I just think she needed a moment of recognition and, and thanks. Like, thank you for being the person who is willing to put your energy towards being of service, mm. you know, and we don't have a respectful conversation around that, you know. Like being of service, it's something that our grandparents used to talk about and and admire. Nowadays, it's so our culture is so selfish, you know. Yeah. And so, of course, you're going to feel alone if you have that inherent drive. And it's a very, very true evolutionary drive. We are driven to be both selfish and feed ourselves first, right? But equally, we we won't survive as a human species unless we cooperate. And in fact, we've risen to the top of the food chain because of our ability to cooperate, primarily through storytelling, myth-telling, coalescing around religious groups, mythology that can actually tell the story of the greater good. That storytelling aspect of things has been wiped away, you know, churches, community groups, um, discussions around the collective, it's been obliterated. And that's why so many of us feel anxious Mm. is because we've got a drive to attend to the collective, to Mm. be of service, but there's no outlet for it. There's no no space where we can go and we're like, welcome, you know? And so a big part of the discussion I had with some of these young people in the series was, no, you are important. It is important you feel this way. And there, is pe- there are people out there that, that need you. You are important. And it's a new storyline we've got to tell and, you know, this Audible series is part of that, I hope. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, one of my biggest coping tools is making meaning from pain because I just refuse to live in a world where pain isn't, uh, can't be transmuted into benefit for others. And after leaving Microsoft, I worked there for seven years. I looked back and I was like, oh, they were totally benefiting from my neurosis. And now even on my journey in this mental health space that I live and breathe 24-7, 365 with the charity, the speaking and everything else, um, anxiety is my superpower unequivocally. I know that for sure in every cell of my body. Um, if I had never been an anxious person, I wouldn't be able to relate to people who are. And I think that gives me the ability to speak in a language that so many people want to feel heard and understood in. Mm-hmm. And, and as a collective, we begin to create a movement uh, in society where we want to help people not struggle anymore. And ultimately to me, that's the meaning of life is to, is to serve and connect. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and I know we're, we're almost at times there. I wish we had four, 45,000 hours Um, because I would uh, I want to know your thoughts on almost everything but we're going to end with a couple rapid fire questions oh good yeah so if you had a billboard on the main highway of Sydney what would it say fire the fuck up fire the fuck up Mm -hmm. yeah love it (laughs) um if you had 
one mantra to live by, what would it be? Everything's okay as it is. Love it. Um, this one's can be deep, but answer it however short or long you feel. What do you think is the meaning of life? Oh, it's a good one. Uh, the meaning of life is to serve. All right, we're aligned there. Um, how do you want to be remembered when you go? Oh, gosh. The first thing that came to mind was as an awesome aunt. Wow. Mm. But then maybe if I was to get a little bit deeper into that, what I if I was to really have a wish list, because I think I will be remembered as an awesome aunt. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm going like the KPI bar. achieved. Yeah, that's it. That's Mission it. successful. Um, I think my nieces and nephews already think that I am. Um, but I would say that it would be, I would ultimately love, don't know if I'll achieve this, but I would love to be one of those women who I like to read about. Mm. slightly mad, did everything differently and made other women like me down the line further along in history feel okay. So Martha Gellhorn, who was married to Ernst Hemingway, I shouldn't even say that as the first thing on her bio, but she was this incredible war correspondent who had to go out and have adventures and she had to go out to the front line and push boundaries. Um, I would like to be remembered as somebody who was that person, but really only to inspire others to do the same, to give that lightness in the heart, the spirit that I get when I read about those kinds of women. Awesome. Uh, and I think you have also achieved that mission as well. So congratulations on hitting your two life goals. Um, I've got another 45 years on this planet, I'm hoping. So I'm hoping that it, you know. It Overachiever. You're going to have to come up with some more. Yeah. Um, <laughs> If you were to have dinner with three people dead or alive, who would they be? Mm, I've always, I said Russell Brand for many years, but then I ended up having dinner with him. So that's ticked <laughs> off. Um, Love it. I'd, I'd still like to invite him to a dinner party. I would say, um, yeah, Donald Trump. Mm. Um, I would say, gosh, who else? Donald Trump, um, I struggle with these things, I've got to say. Probably Martha Gellhorn um, mm -hmm. and Virginia Woolf. Okay. Beautiful. Mm. Um, two more. All, One, three, all three of them are nutters in different ways, for good that, and for, for, for evil. <laughs> all the best are. Yeah, all well, the best are. we'll leave Trump out of that one. He might be <laughs> more sane than we think if we go by that theory. Yeah, well, yeah, that, mm. that's for another podcast. Mm. Um, who's your celebrity crush? Oh, gosh. Um, my celebrity crush would be... Oh, God, I, I don't really look outward to... Um, outward to celebrities all that much um I'm a bit fascinated by Abby Chatfield at the moment just because mm -hmm. I'm like wow it's just so unfamiliar to have that level of bolshiness which I really admire and confidence um so I really admire that for a similar reason Lizzo yeah Lizzo owns her space mm -hmm. and so I'm fascinated by these young women that can sort of do that um, and yeah, I also really like Jerry Seinfeld. 
he has chosen a life that he really likes. I mean, the fact that he was just like, I'm rich. I've done everything I want to do. How am I going to find meaning? I know. I really like coffee. I really like talking cerebrally and spiritually about comedy. And I like cars. So I'm going to make a show called Celebrities Getting Coffee in Cars and not worry about high-tech production qualities, you know, and Mm. just do the show I want to do. I think that's pretty awesome. And last but not least, uh, for a listener that is driving in their car right now, sitting in their office or on a walk, uh, having our, our, at least your beautiful voice in their ears, um, and maybe they're struggling at the moment, what, what do you want them to know? Oh, yeah, that's a really nice question. Um, I would ask them, do you believe that what you're feeling is really ultimately meant to be heading somewhere? Do you feel that it's wrong or do you feel that it's actually going to go somewhere, that it's important? And invariably when I ask that question, people go, yeah, I know that something's meant to happen with this. I know that it's driving towards something, but I don't know what it is. Well, what I would say to you if you're feeling that way is trust that, hold on to it, know it and stick with it longer. Just stay, just stay, just stay, be curious smile at it when you can um, and just trust it because you're right. It's meant Mm -hmm. to go somewhere. And uh, it's been an amazing journey um, going somewhere with you today. Uh, I think we've explored some, some deep and uh, incredibly insightful topics. I've loved your perspective on all of it. Um, Thank you for being the leader that you are. Thank you for giving me this time. And and where can we find uh, the new series and when? Um, Well, it actually launches on the 16th of November, um, the Audible original series, Make Anxiety Your Superpower. So it's only on Audible. Um, And as you know, these Audible originals are kind of, I describe them as a documentary made for for the eerie ears, you know, it's -hmm. it's that kind of thing. Um, So, yeah, that's where you can find it. Awesome. And, And where do we find you online? Well, sarahwilson.com or if you just type Sarah Wilson into Instagram or whatever, I'll eventually come up with a blue dot. Um, Yeah, they're probably. uh, And I've got, of course, my podcast, Wild. And then finally, I've got a Live Nation tour in February, March, which will be about all of this and also about where Australia is heading and what we need to do ahead of the next election. So if you're interested in that, buy tickets. Yeah. Well, I think if you're interested in in a... um a very worthwhile perspective on most things. Uh, you're a good follow. Uh, thank so you. Sarah, <laughs> thank you for today. And I look forward to continuing the journey uh, with you and cheering you on. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for your very considered, kind questions. It was wonderful. My pleasure. My emotions have a natural tendency to dissipate unless they get uh, reinforced. And so if there's more thoughts, more stories, more intentions come along, So the act of how am I leaving it alone is an act of not adding more stories, adding fuel to it. So it might not go away in two minutes, but then it begins to relax and dissipate. And so rather than being the person who has to fix it, we become the person who makes space for the heart, the mind to relax and settle away itself.